Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can expand your sustainable and ESG opportunities with insights from leaders in the field. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these weekly conversations about developments in this fast-growing industry. The Biden administration intends to make climate change adaptation a central part of national economic recovery from the pandemic. And American financial institutions and corporations are playing catch up. So what are institutions, governments, policymakers, and investors supposed to manage these changes? How are they supposed to manage them? That's exactly what my guest today does. Stacy Swan is the CEO of Climate Finance Advisors and a board director at the Montgomery County Green Bank. Stacy works with firms around the world to identify, evaluate, and manage climate risk. Welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, Stacy. Thanks for having me today, Paul. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you join me for this conversation. Stacy, I've been enjoying reading your blog, and you call yourself and others who do what you do translators. Tell us what you mean by that and why investors and companies need translators. And give us a concrete example. I'm thinking of the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which I understand is considered the industry standard for carbon risk evaluation. Uh, so thanks, Paul. And uh, first, maybe for your first question, um, what do we mean by translators? Um, as you know, uh, one of the more exciting things to happen in the climate space in the last four or five years has been the rise of climate data and analytics. Um, and this has been coupled with um, TCFD, as you mentioned. TCFD is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And it is a framework for um, understanding a firm's or an institution's or a financial investor's climate-related financial risks. And um, the framework for TCFD has led to an acceleration of awareness that climate risk is a financial risk and an acceleration in awareness that um, climate risk is also potentially a credit risk. So um, on the back of this, there's been a really amazing um, industry that's relatively new um, that takes climate data and tries to translate climate-related risks um, into financial risks. And there's some wonderful companies out there that are doing this. And the data and analytics tools and software um, services that these entities provide help corporates and financial institutions to quantify climate-related risks so that they can start to manage them. So uh, an investor may use a tool to say, what is my value at risk uh, from this part of my portfolio? Or if I'm gonna invest in that um, entity or that asset, what might be the climate-related value at risk that I need to be aware of uh, before I invest in that asset. And then maybe I can have a discussion with the asset owner or, or the developer on how to manage, mitigate, or, or enhance the resilience of that asset. So these data tools give you that quantified, um, you know, that quantification of the value at risk from climate change. And it, it's pretty fascinating because it, it, some of the tools out there and some of the better ones out there allow you to understand this, this data over different time horizons and different warming scenarios. And it, 
these data tools are built on, you know, um, uh, AI platforms, which are really, you know, kind of mind blowing. So it's been like one of these bright stars in the climate space in the last four to five years. But what we're finding is that having that data tool is, is not necessarily sufficient. It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for some of these organizations to really start to integrate into how they address climate change um, into their operations, into their DNA. TCFD as a framework um, has these four areas that organizations should think about in terms of how they address climate change. Only one of them is risk management. The other three areas are governance, strategy, and metrics and targets. And so what do we mean by translators? We mean that um, having the data tool is, is the first step and it's really important from a risk management perspective, but you also need to have the, the skills and capacity within the organization to understand how that information informs your strategy and how that information then might inform the metrics and targets that you uh, put in place um, into your organization to be able to monitor and track and measure um, your climate risk over time, how uh, far you're kind of achieving, you know, your, um, your investment strategies, your climate investment strategies, and also, um, importantly, how that helps um, all of those things, risk management, strategy, and metrics, help to enhance the governance and management um, capacity you might need appropriately. Um, so that's what we mean by translators. Okay, great. Now, to further complicate this, the, the, this layered approach to analytics of climate risk, Stacy, there are at least two different kinds of climate risk that investors and companies uh, and regulators uh, need to think about, right? I'm referring to both physical and transition risk. Could you Give our listeners the, uh, what the difference is between these two and how, how they're measuring them might be different as well. Absolutely. And, um, and in fact, the, the data and analytics tools uh, that you might use to measure physical risks may be different from the ones you need to measure transition risks. And then, of course, the strategy to address those and capture opportunities to invest in um, either resilience to the physical risk or the, the net zero or low carbon energy transition might be different as well. But to take a step back, uh, physical risks are, um, you know, risks that come about from a changing climate um, and, and are often kind of very easily understood by investors who may not have a background in climate change. So these are things like temperature patterns, sea level rise, uh, increased precipitation or flooding, extreme winds, hurricanes, typhoons, storms, droughts, wildfires, those kinds of physical risks that um, will have, um, will, will uh, change as the planet gets warmer um, uh, and then have an impact on businesses' operations or investors', um, investors um, investments um, and the return profiles, right? So, so those are kind of physical risks. Um, they tend to be described in terms of two ways. Uh, one is acute, um, hazards, which are things that are most often in the headlines, um, storms um, and the like, but also chronic hazards. So uh, things like um, the effects of temperature patterns or water availability because of um, temperature patterns or drought, those kinds of things that are a bit more slow moving and potentially, you know, longer term uh, climatic changes that would affect, you know, um, asset values or return profiles like growing 
growing areas for vineyards and things like that. That's been in the news lately. Um, so that's physical risks. Um, and investors really need to understand how those physical risks um, may map to the value at risk of their investments um, or corporates may map to how they're making their capital investments and their, and their growth. Um, on the transition side, these are uh, transition risks are risks that are brought about because of um, either policy and legal um, changes related to uh, certain types of, um, in, in the climate world, certain types of energy assets or um, production or consumption, but also transition risks include technology risk, market risks, and of course, reputational risks. And um, in this particular case, um, the, the um, Paris Agreement that was signed in 2015 has a global goal of keeping warming to two degrees or less, two degrees warming or less, um, in fact, many people are aspiring to and hoping to keep warming to 1.5 degrees or less. And the, um, the pathway to get to those um, goals really does require an acceleration of the low carbon or net zero energy transition. So when companies are thinking about climate risks as they relate to the transition risks, it really is around the changes in energy consumption um, and production um, and um, fossil fuels. So companies are really uh, starting to figure out how do the, each of these different types of risks um, impact my, um, my ability to make revenues, my costs in the future, my asset values um, in the future, and potentially liabilities that may come about um, over time. Okay. So let's go back to the TCFD and recommendations that come out of that analytics process for a moment. As I understand it, those recommendations are voluntary from a firm compliance perspective. Stacy, why is it that carbon risk compliance is still voluntary, or is it is it is it voluntary in some places but not in others? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, so the TCFD framework, um, because it covers both physical risks and transition risks, it's um, you know, a, a, and it's a framework that. Um, uh, compels um, entities who are disclosing these risks to think about them in, in financial terms. Um, uh, th these are the, the, the framework itself is, is very much about um, a holistic view of how an organization might think of both physical and transition risk. Um, it was put out in 2017. Um, it was um, developed as part of a, um, as its name implies, a task force that was led by Michael Bloomberg the former mayor of New York and um, uh, uh, stakeholders from the financial sector, from Wall Street, from the insurance sector, from pension funds. Um, and they came together and they said, what would be um, a framework that would be um, helpful for us um, and the markets and regulators and policymakers to really understand and increase the transparency of climate related financial risks um, in order to help the financial system you know, uh, avoid uh, potentially a, uh, an existential bubble that may come about um, if we don't um, address climate change and we lose asset values um, in a shock event. Um, so um, when it was put out, it was put out with the recommendation that it be voluntary. And since then, since 2017, a number of um, jurisdictions, including the UK and the EU, and uh, France and a couple of other countries around the world have taken the framework itself and have used it to say, actually, 
we think there are um, uh, entities in our regulated systems, our regulated financial systems, which are important enough um, that we want them to start disclosing around this framework in a, in a mandatory way. And so um, you you may have seen that the um, that the PRA in the UK, um, the Prudential Regulatory Authority has asked that um, entities in the UK start disclosing around the TCFD framework or uh, disclosing their climate related financial risks um, in, in 2021 and 2022. Um, you will have seen last week's news or, or the, about 10 days back, you would have seen the news around the EU's sustainable, um, uh, sustainable taxonomy for um, uh, uh, disclosure and reporting, which has a lot of elements from the TCFD framework. Um, I think you are starting to see policy and reg uh, policymakers and regulators uh, take the TCFD framework a little bit more seriously in terms of it moving from voluntary to mandatory. Um, I think the signals are there. I think um, the signals are also starting to show here in the United States um, that at some point in the future, whether it's mandatory disclosure by regulation or something that is uh, potentially a bit more guardrails around guidance um, on certain types of disclosures, you'll start to see you know, policymakers and regulators move in that direction. Okay, well, thanks for that explanation. That's a, a good perspective about what's, what's happening from a policy and regulatory perspective outside of the US. Let's talk about what's going on inside the US right now for a moment and focus on state versus federal policy. For example, the New York State Department of Financial Services has put the nation's first ever regulatory framework for climate change risk out for public comment recently while California has launched a climate-related risk disclosure advisory group. So Stacy, if I'm the CFO of a state pension fund or a family office, or I'm an advisor to ultra high net worth clients, am I going to be juggling state and federal frameworks now? Is this going to be my new job? Well, I think that um, it, it's a little bit more complicated than simply talking about state and federal framework and reporting. Um, I, I will say um, from the California perspective, my understanding of the work that California will be doing is really around their own internal um, balance sheet. So the California Advisory Board, as I understand it, will be it is looking at how California as a state that spends money um, procures services and invests in things from the public policy, from the public balance sheet perspective, how those dollars will be spent um, and, and the ways that, that um, you know, those processes and policies for spending those money can be enhanced to start addressing climate related financial risks. So that particular working group is, is um, focused on, you know, essentially how the state's balance sheet can walk the talk as, as it were. Um, and see. you see that, yeah, and you see that mirrored actually in some of the um, federal, um, at, at the federal level as well, uh, the executive order that came out on international climate finance uh, during climate week a couple of weeks ago also had elements of the same type of approach. How can the federal government uh, with its international spend start to think about integrating 
uh, climate-related considerations, both risks and opportunities, into how it spends money. And the California um, Advisory Group is doing a similar thing. That said, uh, there have been some pension funds around the country that have already started this. Um, they sometimes fly under the radar. Uh, I sit here in a suburb of Washington, DC, in the state of Maryland. And Maryland um, uh, has now two years of climate risk assessments. Uh, the Maryland State Pension Fund has done two years of climate risk assessments. Um, and it's, it's by legislation. So it was 2018, I believe, um, that uh, the Maryland passed legislation that requires the Maryland State Pension Fund to do reviews of climate-related risks in its pension fund. And you can look it up, uh, both, both the law and the, the reports that um, they've done over the last two years are pretty interesting to read. Um, but I think this is also part of that driver that some um, people who sit on, um, you know, some policymakers who sit on um, uh, balance sheets or funds or, or are minding the, the public taxpayer money in various ways are starting to think that, you know, this really isn't just for corporates and investors. Actually, the public balance sheet also has the potential to start managing climate related risks in a, in a better, more systematic way. Um, so the, the, New York, um, the New York efforts are also welcome. And I think you'll start to see a lot of other states start to think about this um, for their own accounts. And then when it comes to kind of frameworks, um, you know, that might come either at the state level or the federal level, you know, really that's about who's governing whom. Um, the SEC obviously doesn't govern states per se, um, but, you know, uh, I think that you're going to find that there's a lot of um, commonalities uh, between various actors here. So state level actors who are trying to mine the state balance sheet or the state pension funds and potentially regulators who try and um, make sure that the, uh, the information around climate related risks and opportunities by the market or the entities that they regulate is also transparently provided. Um, and, and actually this is a nice way to kind of link up the entire, let's say apparatus of the financial system because in reality, the financial system isn't only private sector or private investors. It also has a lot of public funding um, in the system itself, um, when you think about the infrastructure bill, um, a lot of that funding is really a taxpayer dollars being put to good use and it should be uh, helping, um, you know, it should be mindful of the climate related risks it may face or else it won't be as efficiently uh, employed as possible. So we have the public and the private marketplaces interacting here. We have states and federal in the United States and we have a lot of regulatory work underway in the EU and other places in the world. This process sounds pretty complex. Where can investors begin? If they're not ready to bring in a translator like you, are there climate risk analytics and software tools that they can start using themselves to manage their company's physical and transition risk as well as capture opportunities? Uh, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, we, we have um, a lot of people uh, come to us because they're, they're being, um, uh, they're being asked to do a TCFD disclosure, or they're being asked to understand their climate risk management better. Um, and usually um, the, the drivers for uh, those kinds of things are, are not as holistic in terms of the thinking uh, as TCFD even envisions, right? So um, disclosure itself, uh, you know, is really um, something that sits on 
a good set of risk management practices, internal policies and procedures. And if you're being asked to disclose, but you haven't understood, you haven't done a benchmarking or gap analysis to understand what kind of risks you have, you haven't evaluated them to understand how they might affect um, your financial value at risk, your revenues, assets, and costs, and you don't have a strategy to address them, you have a whole lot of work before you get to the point where you can, um, you know, where, where, you know, a disclosure may be something that you're ready to do. Having said that, I uh, and seeing where some of the regulatory changes are coming, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I predict that this will be a fairly messy period in the next next couple of years as policymakers and regulators um, accelerate their own efforts to put in place some frameworks, um, maybe maybe mandatory, maybe voluntary for a time until they're mandatory. But they're certainly signaling that this is coming, and. Um, organizations and corporations and investors who haven't really rolled up their sleeves to understand um, how they how much climate risk they have where they have it um, through what channels they have it so not just for example their own operations but if they're an investor their their financed portfolio of emissions or their financed portfolio of climate related risks around certain hazards that that's work that needs to happen um, and it's not you know it's not easy work necessarily so um, they could get a tool, entities, and I think tools are going to be increasingly important because the quantification or the crosswalking of these, these risks into financial terms is, is pretty important and the tools do, some of the tools do this very well. Um, but then using that information to really um, make those organizational adjustments um, integrated into processes and procedures is gonna be pretty important to tell a good story and how you've managed the, the risks you might have um, and how you're getting out in front of those risks in order to build a, a positive story about sustainability and resilience. And, um, and so, you know, some of the tools will stop at giving you the quant, the quantification of that value at risk. And they may be able to do it, you know, every day or, or you know, today, next week, next month, next quarter, next year. But having a good understanding of what that information means for your own organization and business is really going to help you with that resilience plan, that sustainability strategy, that positive story for investors um, and for the market, and, and is really the differentiator, I think, when it comes to, or should, will be the differentiator at some point when it comes to um, uh, organizations' ability to, to you know, really thrive in the context of uh, these ongoing risks. Okay, so it sounds like everyone's got a lot of work to do, and uh, we're, we're getting into that part of the, the process where uh, it's, as you said, it's, it's uh, public, it's private, uh, everyone is involved. And so in the last couple of minutes that we have, I want to focus on a on climate risk repricing, which many leading financial market investors are anticipating that our markets will go through a period of repricing, whether through regulation, as we've been discussing, or physical climate related events, as you were mentioning earlier in the program. When do you anticipate that financial market cost of capital will better reflect how organizations address and manage climate risks and opportunities? Well, I think it's already starting to happen. Um, I, I think um, 
it may not be as noticeable to everybody, but um, there's research that has been um, that has been coming out for um, about 24 months, um, and it's it's being done by um, some very smart people in the UK um, at SOAS and the IMF, and um, it's really uh, starting to show um, the research is starting to show that. Uh, countries and emerging markets that are highly vulnerable to climate, certain types of climate risks, in particular physical risks, um, are already starting to see a noticeable difference in their cost of capital. And um, that's really, really important to, um, to flag because um, the, the sovereign bond spreads are starting to, to shift for those countries that are highly vulnerable. And um, one of the reasons or the drivers for that in my in my uh, view, is, is that the rating agencies that are doing the, um, the ratings of those sovereign bonds are now all have the internal skills and capacity and data analytics functions to be able to um, isolate climate related risks and the impacts kind of to sovereign, uh, you know, to those sovereign bonds. So that that's starting to happen. It's starting to happen on sovereign bonds. That's something that's um, you know, also when you look at the data from from IMF and others about this, it's in the um, it, it's um, in the rearview mirror. Meaning, meaning it's analysis that's been done um, uh, up until 2018, 2019, which means um, if it was starting to show even kind of two, three years ago, it's definitely uh, still probably there. Um, and if the rating agencies are um, if the rating agencies are uh, starting to incorporate this for sovereign bonds, you know that they've got this capability to do it across a number of different asset classes. So it may happen faster than investors may be prepared for it. And I think that's something that people should be aware of. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, one other, uh, let's say, kind of um, potential kind of bright light that's coming out of some of that research, um, the the um, research that's kind of late 2020 out of the IMF, there's a few papers that they have published where they've essentially said not only um, are we starting to, to see this um, show up in the spread of sovereign bonds, but we're also starting to see that um, the vulnerability and resilience um, angles of those sovereigns can affect the cost of capital in in opposite ways. So if vulnerability increases the cost of capital, they are also starting to show that countries that are more resilient to climate change as measured by their strategies to address these risks. So if they have a resilience plan, if they're starting to act on that resilience plan, that those countries may have lower bond yields and spreads relative to countries that have a higher vulnerability. Now that's new data. That's the, the papers that are kind of starting to show that are November, 2020. So relatively new, more research is needed, of course. Um, and the period of time that they were looking at was 95 to 2017. So again, it's, it's dated, but still that, um, that, that uh, conclusion that they're pulling out of, of uh, that analysis is pretty interesting. But I think it's consistent with, um, with the, the what you see in kind of the disclosure space, which is um, investors, companies, corporates that disclose their risks and the opportunities that they have um, decided to capture to, to address those risks, to become more resilient, to become more sustainable. 
actually have kind of a positive effect um, in terms of how that is uh, how that's kind of channeled through in terms of how the market perceives them and, and potentially treats them. And then who knows, potentially affects their cost of capital and their borrowing costs, uh, particularly if they're being rated by the rating agencies. So I think this all comes back together in that, in that regard. Um, and then in terms of kind of shocks or repricing, um, we're definitely, um, our window for action in particular on the low carbon or net zero transition is closing um, quickly. And every day that goes by that we don't address um, our, that we don't reduce emissions quickly, um, the window <laughs> closes even quicker. Um, so, you know, we may, we may actually very well have um, a, a dramatic repricing set of events over the course of the next 10 years as um, the science and data around how much warming we've locked in gets better. Um, the analysis of how much action we still need to take is more crystallized and, um, and the financial sector starts to price that in um, because uh, the, the horizons that they operate under are kind of now within the windows that they can start to shift and, and reallocate. Um, so how can our listeners get in touch with you about work, your work at Climate Financial Advisors, and how can they contact you for more information about what we've discussed on today's program? So uh, thanks, Paul. We're, you can always get in touch with us at info at climate-fa.com. Uh, that is, that's the main email account of Climate Finance Advisors, or uh, if, uh, if people are interested in getting in touch with me, uh, S Swan at climate-fa.com is, is also good email. Great. Well, thanks again, Stacy Swan, CEO of Climate Finance Advisors. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. <laughs>